Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Spooktacular Now. I am your host, Nicole, here with Kenzie. Denise is out today. She's got a little bit of a cold, so she'll be back with us next week. We miss her. We do. We have another fun lady killer episode for y'all. Now, I know Lizzie Borden might seem a little overdone. And at first, when I was trying to decide on who I would pick for the next lady killer episode, I thought... Lizzie Borden, been there, done that. But then the more I thought about it, I realized I honestly didn't really know a whole lot about her. I basically knew three or four things. What about you, Kens? Uh, I guess same. Um, When I think of her, I just think of like that silly children's nursery rhyme, Mm. which I couldn't even recite to you if I tried. Uh, Just that there was murder involved with her parents and that's pretty much it so i really honestly i don't know much about her at all well it's your lucky day because <laughs> you're going to learn more than you ever wanted to know oh boy <laughs> and i will perform that nursery rhyme for you oh excellent and you will learn it officially <laughs> so i thought about it what did i actually know about lizzie borden and this is what i came up with i knew that she'd been accused of murdering her parents with an axe And that she came from a wealthy family somewhere in New England, but I couldn't exactly tell you where. I knew that she'd been tried and acquitted of the murders. And I remember, like you said, there's a morbid children's nursery rhyme about these events and that it went something like this. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if kids performed it like that back in the I like day. The little hip hop spin you put on it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, they might have been more like Lizzie Borden. No, I don't know. I'm not even gonna go there. Yeah, something creepy. Oh yeah. <laughs> so there are a few issues with this nursery rhyme. Some of the facts aren't factual. It was a hatchet, not an axe. I thought they were the same thing. I did too. Yeah, and like they were just like synonyms. But there is a little bit of a difference. And she whacked her stepmother, not her real mother. She whacked her about 19 times and her father 10 to 11 times. So the numbers are off. So there was a little truth to it in that she murdered stepmother first and then murdered her father. So we'll just chalk the rest up to like artistic license, I guess. Mm -hmm. Back to the hatchet versus axe. And I thought, you know, a hatchet's a small axe, but I looked it up and a hatchet is about half the size of a hand axe. And you'll see, if you want to see pictures on Google, the head shape is a little different between hatchets and axes. A hatchet head is smaller and has a significant taper. And an axe head is typically larger and has a very slight taper. Really, it's like splitting hairs. Both will get the job done, I guess. Now you know more about axes and hatchets than you ever thought you would know. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely going to file this uh, knowledge away for use. You'll be able to sleep tonight. Yep. Mm -hmm. So beyond all of these juicy tidbits, I really knew very little about the story. So I decided, hey, YOLO. And I went with Lizzie Borden. Because two things I just had to know. What was this rich girl's problem? What was her motive? And how did she get acquitted? This just wouldn't happen today. Yeah. Or hmm, maybe it would. I don't know. You'll find Nary a historian who doubts this bitch's guilt. The circumstantial evidence is overwhelming. So to understand how she was able to escape justice, we need to discuss some factors that were at play, including nativism. You know, the whole xenophobia thing, Mm. gender stereotypes and wealth. So all of these things most likely played into her acquittal. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Let's learn a little bit more about our girl of the hour. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts. That just sounds like a lovely place. It does. Want to go to there. 
What's it got? Falls. What's it also got? A river. What's this town's name? Fall River. Perfection. (laughs) So she was born to Sarah Anthony Borden and wealthy businessman Andrew Jackson Borden. She had a sister, Emma, who was nine years older. Andrew Borden was the descendant of a local wealthy family. So anybody named Borden in Fall River was associated with wealth and success. Andrew Borden, he made his own fortune though. He made it in the furniture and casket manufacturing and sales business and later property development. He was also the director of several textile mills and owned a considerable amount of commercial property. He went on to become president of a local bank as one does. His estate was estimated to be valued at $300,000 at the time of his death, which would be about $9.6 million in 2022. Dang, so they were rolling in the dough. Definitely. Lizzie's mother, Sarah, sadly died when Lizzie was only three years old. And three years after her death, Andrew Borden married Abby Durfee Gray. So even though Andrew Borden was a wealthy guy, he was notoriously frugal. For example, the Borden house lacked indoor plumbing. And by this day and age, indoor plumbing was very popular and common with wealthy families. So it was uncommon for families of this stature to use an outhouse. And I mean, Massachusetts winters are a lot like Northern Ohio winters. They're really cold. They get a lot of snow. So you can imagine going out in your knickers and your pantaloons (laughs) and a robe or your dress dragging through the slushy snow to go to the bathroom in the middle. You come back inside and your butt cheeks are frozen. Right? You might even get frozen to the seat. Yeah. No, thanks. Mm Oh, right? <laughs> Going out there in the middle of the night when it's 20 below zero. Yeah. That sounds like horrific. What was this dude's deal? I mean, I know. He, had, he definitely had the means of easily getting indoor plumbing installed. And he was just like, nah, it's too much money. Now that I think of it, they probably had a piss pot by their bed. Oh, chamber pots? Uh, yes, a chamber pot. And the maids and had to come maid and clean come. them in the oh, morning. Yeah, oh, no. gross. No, no, no. Oh. I think about how far we've come, how people used to live Most. back then. I, Even if you weren't wealthy. I know. But you had to deal with. Sometimes I say to myself, I am so happy I was born when I was born. Yeah. Especially when I'm reading all of these, yeah. you know, historical Thank goodness narratives. we live in the era of yeah. indoor modern plumbing. No. And when I was looking at the clothes that Lizzie wore during this time, yeah. all like buttoned up all the way up her neck and these, oh. Yeah, very, like large skirts, but very form-fitting up Bustles. top. Yeah. Yes. And they would go up, like the collars would go up very high. Uh-huh. I'm like that just seems so restricting and uncomfortable. I don't even like wearing socks half the time because they restrict <laughs> my feet too much. Yeah. See. Yeah. We couldn't have lived back then. <laughs> no. It just wouldn't have worked. So at this time, all the wealthiest families of Fall River, Massachusetts, lived in a high-end and fashionable area called The Hill. But Andrew Borden refused to live there and instead made their home in a more industrial area of town, although it was still higher end than other areas of town. This was often a bone of contention between Lizzie and her father, as she would often ask him, probably beg him, to move to the more fashionable hill, (laughs) as she was definitely all about keeping up appearances. It was also reported that Lizzie had been influenced by the growing nativism of the area in response to the influx of Irish Catholic immigrants, and it's possible this was a motivating factor for her wanting to leave. So life growing up for Lizzie and her older sister, Emma, was relatively comfortable compared to poor families, and they were brought up in a very religious household, attending church regularly. Lizzie was very involved in church activities and at one point was teaching Sunday school. Oh, she's a saint. Right. She was on the board of the Christian Endeavor Society, and she was involved in the Christian Women's Temperance Society. (laughs) So obviously, church and faith formed the backbone of her social life. It always does. Yeah. For some of these lady killers. (laughs) It's a facade. Yeah. As mentioned earlier, Andrew Borden remarried, and Lizzie was just six years old at the time. And reportedly, she and her stepmother didn't have the warmest of relationships. Growing up, 
Lizzie referred to her stepmother as Mrs. Borden. She was suspicious that Abby married her father for his money. And as the Borden girls grew up, the girls, their father and stepmother, were not really one big happy family. Hmm. This was not Little House on the Prairie. And Laura Ingalls and Lizzie had very little in common. The Bordens had an Irish maid, Maggie Sullivan. And later, at Lizzie's trial, she stated that oftentimes the Borden sisters would not eat dinner with their father and stepmother. They wouldn't even eat together. Weird. So it was not a house of love. No. Lizzie Borden had a thing for pigeons. And there were a lot of pigeons in Fall River, Massachusetts at the time, especially in their neighborhood. And in the spring of 1892, Lizzie had built a roost for the pigeons. Wow. Andrew Borden found them to be a nuisance <laughs> and took a hatchet <gasps> and killed the pigeons, oh believing, right? Believing that neighborhood children were coming on the property to hunt the pigeons. He also believed that they were robots no I'm kidding. <laughs> birds are not real birds are not spying the birds work for the bourgeoisie exactly <laughs> they're government drones he was ahead of his time he was he knew but back then they were just like wind-ups yes yeah and their little feet went doo, doo, doo. <laughs> so uh, he killed all of these Poor innocent pigeons, and apparently this incensed Lizzie, and possibly this was something she could not forgive her father for. In July of 1892, it's also believed that the family unit as a whole had not been getting along. So Emma and Lizzie decided to take an extended break to New Bedford, Massachusetts. So they went on a vacation. Lizzie returned to Fall River just one week prior to the murders and chose to stay in a boarding house for four days before moving back into the home three days before her parents' deaths. Okay, so let's look at this. She pretty much had everything growing up except an indoor toilet, <laughs> which is that enough to kill someone? I mean, over... I don't know. In those conditions, I mean, yeah, I, I might be driven to <laughs> possibly acts of aggression. <laughs> so she has this stepmother that she doesn't really like or get along with. Then she has these pigeon pets and that her dad takes a hatchet to them and gets rid of them. And I'm sure that upset her. Yeah. Like this. She probably loved those pigeons. It's probably like the one thing that she had that was like, this is my own and I'm going to take care of it. And then right. he just like, that's like the worst thing you can do as a parent. Just destroy something your kid loves exactly. and has, is passionate about. Like, But is all of this enough to drive someone to murder your dad and mm. your, it's just. There's True. I mean, I be guess more to the story. You could just be like angry and not want to speak to him. Right. Yeah. Why? What? After all this time, she just decides to kill him. Yeah. Well, why have things gotten so bad between Lizzie and Emma and their father and stepmother? Well, one factor is, and you can take a guess, they were fighting over something in particular. And that was money. Ah. Uh -huh. Andrew had apparently been gifting real estate to various members of Abby's family. Abby's sister even received a home, which prompted the girls to ask their father for a property of their own. They chose the home they had lived in until their mother died, and their father actually sold it to them for a dollar. And curiously, a few weeks prior to the murders, Lizzie and Emma sold the property back to their father for $5,000, which in today's market is equal to over $150,000. Whoa. Coincidence? I think not. Exactly. So maybe the heart of this is greed. Yeah. And those pigeons that pushed her over the edge. Yeah. Those pigeons. For several days prior to the murders, the family had become very ill with a stomach bug. A neighbor guessed that it must have been some type of food poisoning, but during those days, Abby became worried thinking that it was someone attempting to poison Andrew because he hadn't been very popular in town with some of the folks at the time. August 3rd, 1892. Now, we're up to the night before the murders. Emma and Lizzie's uncle John Morse, this is their deceased mother's brother, came to stay with the family to discuss business matters with her father. He slept in the guest room that night. The next morning after breakfast, Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, John, and the maid Maggie Sullivan were all present in the home. 
Emma was still staying in New Bedford at the time. Andrew and Uncle John went to the sitting room and talked for about an hour. John left the house around 8.48 to buy some oxen and to visit a niece that also lived in Fall River. He said he'd be back around lunchtime. Andrew then left for his morning walk around 9 a.m. Cleaning the guest room was often a chore delegated to Lizzie and Emma, but on this day, Abby saw to the task. She went upstairs somewhere between 9 and 10.30 a.m. to tidy up and make the bed. It was while cleaning the guest room that Abby was confronted by her killer. She was facing the murderer during the first blow to her head, which cut her above her ear and caused her to turn and fall face down, hitting her nose and forehead on the floor, which I guess showed signs of bruising from hitting the floor. She was then hit several more times in the back of the head until she was dead, until it killed her. Andrew returned from his walk around 1030 and attempted to unlock the door with his key, but the door was apparently jammed. Maggie, the maid, was on the other side trying to open the jammed door. She said a curse word, which prompted a laugh from Lizzie, and Sullivan later testified Lizzie was at the top of the stairs when she did this. This is an important piece of the puzzle because it would mean that Abby was already dead by the time this took place, and anybody upstairs would have been able to see Abby's body through the open door of the guest room. Lizzie later denied being upstairs at this time and recalled that when her father came into the house, he asked where Abby was and Lizzie reportedly told him that she had received a notice at the home to go and visit a sick friend. Maggie later recalled that she helped Andrew out of his boots and into his slippers before he went to the parlor for a nap on the sofa. And this would be contradicted by the crime scene photos, which showed that Andrew was clearly wearing his boots. So people are getting their stories mixed up here a little bit. Interesting. Sullivan told Lizzie about a sale at a department store and Lizzie invited her to come along. However, Sullivan declined and said she wasn't feeling well and that she wanted to stay and lie down in her room to take a nap instead. Sullivan testified that she was in her third floor room resting when just before 1110, she heard Lizzie shrieking from downstairs, Maggie, come quick, father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was found slumped on the couch in the downstairs parlor, and it looked like he'd been hit about 10 or 11 times with an hatchet-like, hatchet, <laughs> with a hatchet-like weapon. And this is really gross, but one of his eyes had been split cleanly in two. <gasps> yeah. And his still bleeding wounds suggested that the attack had happened pretty recently. And I read too that Lizzie told Maggie to go and get the doctor. And originally Maggie went across the street to fetch their family physician and he wasn't home at the time. But apparently there were a lot of doctors that lived in their neighborhood. So she went and found this other doctor who was an Irish immigrant. And that wasn't okay with Lizzie. She went and found a French-Canadian doctor, and that was not okay with Lizzie. (gasps) What? She was insisting on this American-born doctor to come in and see her father, which, you know. That's so silly. Yeah. Again, she was kind of like in this whole xenophobic frame of mind. So, But see, she wasn't really concerned about her father being saved because she knew he was already dead because she did it. Yeah, that's true. But so I'm confused well, maybe I'll talk about this, but Maggie was there when she killed Abby. Yes. So she I may have skipped hear that. Her... So Abby was outside cleaning the windows. Oh, and I think okay. I did skip over that. Okay. So Abby was outside cleaning the windows between nine and ten thirty. Gotcha. So it was during that time that she killed Abby. Yes. That Lizzie okay. went up and killed her stepmother, and conveniently. Maggie Sullivan was outside cleaning the windows. Gotcha. So then she takes care of that. Then Mr. Borden comes home. Maggie's back inside now. The door is jammed. Maybe this is something that happened a lot. I don't know. So Maggie's on the other side trying to open the door. And she says a curse word because she can't get the door open. But she hears Lizzie laughing coming from up the stairs. Upstairs. Okay. So... That showed that Lizzie was upstairs and at the time would have seen her dead stepmother's right, body. Right, right. Okay, okay. Now so then 
Lizzie conveniently puts herself out of the house by talking about this department store sale. Yeah, yeah. Which Sullivan said she mentioned to Lizzie. It kind of sounds like they were in this together, maybe. It, yeah, I'm. I'm kind of suspecting mm-hmm. Maggie's like an accomplice or something. Yeah, something. But because then she goes up and takes a nap. Yeah. When in the middle of the day, when um the but father is getting hatcheted on yeah. the couch, and like, but she's a maid. She would probably still have duties to attend to mm-hmm. during the day. I don't think they took many. I mean, I don't know you said it was. It wasn't like a grand house or anything, but. I can't imagine she had much time to just take a nap during the day very often. Yeah, so she missed that whole um, horrific event in the parlor. Yeah. she. Well, we talked about her xenophobia and Maggie was the Irish immigrant. Was she trying to pin it on Maggie? No. No. Back to Dr. Bowen, the family doctor. He finally arrives at the house from across the street and he pronounces both victims dead. And detectives estimated that Andrew's death had occurred approximately 11 a.m.-ish. So like a two-hour window that the two were murdered. Hmm. So when police started talking to Lizzie, her answers were often strange and contradictory. Like she couldn't really get her story straight. And she often gave different answers to different people. She stated that, oh, she heard somebody groaning. Um, She maybe heard a scraping sound or a distress call, like someone was calling for help before entering the house. She wasn't sure. Two hours later, she told the police she hadn't heard anything and entered the house and didn't think anything was wrong. So when she was asked where her stepmother was, she recounted Abby got a note asking her to visit a sick friend conveniently. So according to Lizzie, she didn't think Abby was home. Hmm. She also stated that she thought her stepmom had come back and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. Sullivan and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor when they looked into the guest room and they saw that Abby was lying face down on the floor. So most of the police officers who interviewed Lizzie reported that they didn't like her demeanor. Uh, Some of them said she was very calm and poised. Here, her stepmother and father had just been brutally hatcheted to death, and she was just, like, kind of chill, kind of spooky. It's not suspicious at all. No. So even though she had this weird, you know, presence, and she kept changing her story, changing her alibi... Nobody bothered to check her for blood stains. I guess they didn't really give her a good examination. Hmm. They did search her room, um, but it was just kind of like a uh, standard practice. Yeah. At the trial, the police admitted that they did not do a proper search because Borden stated she was not feeling well. In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle, and it looked like the hatchet head had been recently broken off. So at the time, this was the suspected murder weapon because that break below the hatchet head didn't have um, any dirt on it. But it did look like somebody had rubbed fresh ash and dust on the head. It was like really obvious that someone put something on it, unlike the other bladed tools. Um, It was like it was deliberately made to look that it had been down in the basement for some time. Ah, okay. Like it it was was just an old hatchet that they hadn't used in a while because it was dirty, broken. Yeah, exactly. It's got this fresh break, but oh, it's got a cobweb on it. Right, right. (laughs) So none of the tools, this is interesting, none of the tools were removed from the house. What? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, it's not like they... Well, would they have done fingerprints back then? Did they know about fingerprints? Yeah, I think fingerprinting at this time was being used. We'll clarify. Mm. But they had this illness, remember, at the time for a few days prior to the murders. Their stomachs were kind of upset. And this is interesting. Andrew and Abby's stomachs had been removed during the autopsy. Um, The autopsy? was performed in the dining room of the Borden house. What? Uh-huh. Why? I, 
1892. I, you know, just they, they have just their did own, things. Like, medical examiner's yeah, office not. that's so bizarre yeah probably because these things just didn't happen a whole lot yeah true so the stomachs were removed and they were tested for poison because remember abby was concerned that perhaps someone was trying to poison andrew when they were all sick hmm. no poison was found nothing suspicious was found in their stomachs but residents did suspect lizzie of buying hydrocyanic acid in a diluted form from a local drugstore but her defense team said she inquired about the acid because she wanted to clean her furs. Despite the local medical examiner saying that that type of acid does not have any antiseptic properties. Oh, interesting. Is very so, interesting. Hmm. She tried to buy some. Apparently she didn't get any though. Hmm. So Lizzie and Emma had a friend named Alice Russell. And she had decided to stay with them the night following the murders while their uncle spent the night in the attic guest room. Police were set up stationed all around the house on the night of August 4th, the night after the murders happened. And at that time, an officer stated he'd seen Lizzie enter the cellar with Russell carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail, like a bucket that's what you call a bucket um he saw both women then come out of the cellar after which lizzie returned alone though he was unable to see what she was doing he stated it looked like she was bent over the sink then the next day on august 5th uncle john morse he left the house and there were tons of people waiting outside to talk to anybody who was coming in or out of the house police had to escort him back to the house he tried to leave and it was just didn't go well hmm. the next day august 6th the police decided, okay, we need to look in the house again. So they were going to be more thorough this time. They looked at the sister's clothing. They took the broken-handled hatchet head. <laughs> Later that night, a police officer and the mayor came to the Borden household, and Lizzie was told that she was now a suspect in the murders. The next day, her friend Russell entered the kitchen to find Borden was tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it on the fire because it was covered in paint, but it was never determined if this was the dress she had been wearing on the day of the murder. So she mm. was witnessed destroying a dress, which is also kind of incriminating. Yeah, a little sus. Yeah, just a little. On August 8th, an inquest hearing was held. She wanted to have her family attorney there. Uh, but her request was denied because of a state statute saying that the inquest had to be held in private. She had also been prescribed by the family doctor do uh, regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves because she was just so shaken by the murders. Mm -hmm. So it's possible, yeah, that her testimony could have been affected by this. But I guess her behavior was recorded as being kind of erratic. She would refuse to answer a question even if the answer could have benefited her, like if it would have showed. Oh. So she was really struggling, I guess, during this inquest. Yeah, that's not good. Right. And she would often contradict herself. She'd give alternate accounts of the morning that the murders happened. She said at one point she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father came home. Then she said she was in the dining room doing some ironing or she was coming down the stairs. She also said she took her father's boots off and put the slippers on him. But the photographs clearly show yeah. he had his boots on. It's like, why do they keep saying this? Are they trying to say, oh, look how much we cared about him. We welcomed him back to the house. We took his oh, boots off. Yeah. We put his slippers on. Look yeah. how much we cared about him. But none of that happened. He died with his boots on. So it is also... Noted that the district attorney, when questioning Lizzie, he was very aggressive towards her. He was ruthless and confrontational. I guess he really just let her have it. Hmm. On August 11th, one week after the murders, Lizzie Borden was arrested and sent to stay in the county jail. So we have this very privileged, wealthy woman who is now confined to a nine and a half by seven and a half foot cell where she stayed for the next nine months. Wow. While all the evidence was being collected and documented and the district attorney was preparing the case against her. She stayed there for nine months leading up to the trial. 
So how old was she when this happened? 32. Uh, okay. I For some reason, I'm picturing her as a younger woman. I'm surprised that at 32, she was unmarried and had no prospects. Right. Seems kind of odd. Like yeah. kind of, maybe you know, they were just, you know, the sisters were just kind of odd and unsociable. Something was up. Yeah. You know, but when you look at, the, there's a lot of photographs of her online. She was, she was attractive. Mm. I mean, I would say for, I would like to read even more. There's been a lot written about her and yeah. I would love to read something even more in depth about what was she like growing up and what was she like as just in yeah, general? Like yeah. Why was she? Why yeah. she didn't seem to attract any suitors or maybe she didn't want any. Possible. I yeah. mean, she really didn't have need to marry anyone. She That's had, true. she had all this wealth and they didn't have. I don't think they had the same laws here at the time. Like, you know how they had in England where the money the, was always passed down oh, to the true. next male like heir? The estate, yeah. Women, I believe, at the time could inherit wealth from their um, father. So maybe she was just like, eh, why bother? Who yeah, knows? True. For the trial, the inquest testimony, remember when she was taking all that morphine? It was later ruled to be inadmissible. So the trial was slated for June of 1893, and her inquest testimony was found to be ruled inadmissible because it was just, the interviews were just bad. She yeah. was taking morphine. She was acting bizarrely. She couldn't answer even some simple questions. She was just really flustered. So they couldn't use it at the trial. A grand jury began hearing evidence against Lizzie Borden on November 7th of 1892. She was officially indicted on December 2nd. Oh, that's tomorrow. And it would be how many years? 130. Whoa. Tomorrow is the official 130 anniversary of Lizzie Borden's indictment. Wow. What a weird coincidence. That's very weird. A lot of people believe that Lizzie Borden was innocent. She had a lot of people on her side. And I was asking myself, would she have all of this support if she didn't have all this wealth and privilege? Hmm. Yeah, probably not. No. She'd just be another like peasant woman. Peasant. Yeah. Right. Would she have all this support if she were a Catholic Irish immigrant? Oh. Probably not. No. No. So there's where all this nativism, this wealth and privilege is playing into this trial. She has all this support. So she has the local newspaper making stories, putting stories out there, fully backing her, saying she is innocent. Oh, my God. This that's newspaper so... that's supposed to be unbiased, oh right? Oh, God. Yeah. So the Women's Christian Temperance Union they backed her. The suffragettes, local suffragettes, they all got behind her, felt she was innocent. How could this wealthy, church-going, God-fearing woman kill her parents? So, obviously, she could afford the best attorneys for this entire ordeal. Mm -hmm. During early preliminary hearings, um, one of Boston's most prominent defense attorneys joined the family attorney to represent her and to push for her innocence so it was a small courtroom and it was above the police station and every day it would be packed with lizzie supporters and they were probably had little pins that said free lizzie <laughs> banners <laughs> yeah free lizzie a lot of women from the hill also came to support her oh the magical hill and just think if her dad had just put in some GD indoor plumbing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or had allowed them to live at the hill. Yeah. She never would have had to murder them. We didn't kill her pigeons. <laughs> right? Oh, my gosh. She had such a hard life. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, it's interesting to me that it doesn't seem that they ever suspected anybody else. They didn't arrest anybody else. Well, initially, of course... Um, a, an immigrant in the area wow. was arrested and they thought, oh, oh he did course. it. But then he was let go because he had an alibi. But the maid was never suspect? There's, I think there's more to the story. Oh, okay. So the people who came there and were supporting her, they were often really moved by her testimony. But sometimes they were a little unsettled by what they heard. And one thing, for example, there was a 
chemistry professor from Harvard. He stated he found no blood on axes and hatchets removed from the cellar because later they did end up taking them, Mm -hmm. but not the days of the murder. Oh, no, no. Later. Yeah. So these are the hatchets that she had turned into the police. And two days after the murders, the dress that she allegedly wore on the morning of August 4th was also turned in and only had a minuscule spot of blood on the hem. And that could have come from anything. And at the time, they didn't have DNA testing. Right. She probably was like, oh, I cut my finger. Yeah. You know, or yeah. it was from a pigeon. <laughs> so that was not a big deal. <laughs> and her attorneys really wanted to get the point across that the prosecution did not put forth any murder weapon and they didn't have any bloody clothes. This was all circumstantial. And remember that rumor that she had tried to buy some acid from the drugstore? Mm. Her attorneys said that it must have been misidentification. It wasn't really Lizzie that was seen trying to buy this acid. It had to have been somebody else. Oh, of course. Right. So Lizzie Borden's trial took place in New Bedford, Massachusetts, officially starting on June 5th, 1893. She had many successful attorneys supporting her. The prosecuting attorneys were Hosea Knowlton and future United States Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody. Her defense attorneys included Andrew Jennings, Melvin Adams, and former Massachusetts Governor George Robinson. And this is interesting. About five days before the trial started, another axe murder occurred in Fall River, Massachusetts. (laughs) But this time, the victim was someone named Bertha Manchester, and she was found hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities between the Manchester and Borden's murders were striking. They really stood out, and the jurors noticed this. Um, However, a Portuguese immigrant by the name of Jose Carrera de Mello was later convicted of the murders, and he was not in the area of Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. Oh, darn, that would have been the perfect cover-up for her. Right. Oh, it must have been him. Perhaps he was inspired by these murders. Yeah, though. that is kind of weird. It that is kind of, yeah. Another axe murder. Mm-hmm. So remember this hatchet head that was found in the basement of the Borden house. The prosecuting attorney couldn't convincingly demonstrate to the jury that it was most likely the murder weapon. They argued the killer had removed the handle because why? Because it must have been covered in blood. And an officer later testified that a hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head. But then another officer said, no, that didn't happen. We didn't see that. So that wasn't really going very well, presenting this as the murder weapon. And though there was no bloody clothing that was found at the scene, remember her friend Russell? She testified on August 8th, 1892, that she had witnessed... Lizzie burn a dress in the kitchen stove, saying that it had been ruined when she brushed against wet paint. What a coincidence. Mm. Lizzie Borden's timeline at the home was also a big point that was argued during the trial. So during testimony, Maggie Sullivan, the maid, entered the second floor of the home around 1058. She'd been out cleaning windows left Lizzie and her father downstairs. So she came in and she was going to lie down. Lizzie told a bunch of people at this time she went to the barn and was not in the house for 20 minutes or possibly a half an hour. Conveniently. But remember the original story was she was going to go to some sh- some sale at a department store. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's a big jump to taking your story. Yeah. So a neighbor testified for the defense that he saw Lizzie leaving the barn at 11.03 a.m. And someone else testified that this time was correct. At 11.10, Lizzie called Sullivan downstairs, told her that her father had been murdered, and ordered her not to enter the room. Instead, Borden sent her to get a doctor. And only one doctor would do. So both of the victims' heads were removed during the autopsy and the skulls were admitted as evidence during the trial on June 5th, 1893, to be exact. Upon seeing the heads in the courtroom, 
Lizzie fainted. And that evidence that Lizzie had tried to buy that acid from the drugstore, well, that was excluded. But she had attempted to buy it the day before the murders, which was now wanted to be, was going to be presented in trial. The presiding associate justice, Justin Dewey, he delivered a long summary that supported the defense as his charge to the jury before the, they were sent to deliberate on June 20th, 1893. So it only took them an hour and a half to deliberate and they acquitted Borden of the murders. And when she was leaving the courthouse, she said to reporters, she was the happiest woman in the world. So as for motive and a lot of speculation around the murders and the trial, Lizzie Borden still remains the prime suspect in her father's and stepmother's murders. A writer proposed in 1967 that maybe she committed the murders while in a fugue state. <laughs> you know, that's supposed to be like multiple personality or dissociative identity disorder, a fugue state. It's like you're someone else or you have no recollection of your actions, Bob. How convenient. Uh, yeah. I don't know about that. And she's like never done that before. Yeah. And... There were also some other suggestions uh, that possibly she was physically and sexually abused by her father, which drove her to kill him. But there's really very little evidence to support this. But, you know, considering the time, Talking about things like that, incest, that wasn't something that would have been discussed a lot. Um, and the methods, you know, that would have been used to collect evidence like that would have been a lot different back in 1892. Right. So that wasn't really considered um, heavily. Another writer, Evan Hunter, in 1984, wrote a book called Lizzie. This writer suggested that Lizzie Borden committed the murders because she had been caught in a love tryst with Maggie Sullivan. Remember earlier we were talking oh, about how could she not have been involved with this right. because she conveniently put herself in different areas when these murders were being committed. So that could be interesting. And that, Well, not only would that have been taboo, but the fact that she was an Irish immigrant, mm -hmm. that would have been even more un and unthought of. She never married a man. Right. Maybe she, yeah. yeah. Maybe she was gay. Could could have been. An author went on to elaborate on about this speculation that they had been caught in the love tryst in 1999. And this writer suggested that Abby maybe caught Lizzie and Sullivan together and had reacted with horror and disgust and that Lizzie killed Abby with a candlestick. Lizzie with the candlestick in the guest room. <laughs> <laughs> so then the writer went on to say, Andrew returned. She had confessed to him of what she had done, but then she killed him in a rage with a hatchet when he reacted exactly as Abby had. I mean, that's kind of, you yeah, would, well, that, that's just totally just making up a story and trying, nobody yeah, knows exactly what yeah. happened. I mean, I think obviously they know the method by which Abby was killed if her wounds matched Andrew's. Right. So in her later years, Borden was actually rumored to be gay, but there's no such speculation about Maggie Sullivan. Sullivan went on to find other employment after the murders and married a man while working as a maid in Butte, Montana. And she passed away in 1948. It is said that she gave a deathbed confession to her sister stating she had changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie Borden. Interesting. Hmm. So then looking at it from another angle, another suspect is John Morse. Remember the uncle yes. who was staying with them? He rarely met with a family after his sister died. That was Lizzie and Emma's mom, but had slept in the house the night before the murders. And according to police, Morse had provided an absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden. He was considered a suspect by police for some time. Other people noted as potential suspects included Maggie Sullivan herself, 
maybe kind of in retaliation for being ordered to clean the windows on a hot day. Again, that's a little extreme. (laughs) And I guess the day of the murders, it was pretty hot. And she was trying to recover from that mystery illness, which would explain why she wanted to lie down in the middle of the day. Uh, True. Someone related to the Borden family named William Borden, suspected to be Andrew's illegitimate son, was noted as a possible suspect as well in another book called Lizzie Borden, The Legend, The Truth, The Final Chapter. And it stated that William Borden had tried and failed to extort money from Andrew Borden. And this author did extensive research and was able to prove that he was actually not Andrew Borden's son. uh, Remember Emma, the sister? She was staying in New Bedford at the time, about 15 miles away. In another book, they stated she might have secretly visited the residence to kill her parents before returning to her vacation to receive the telegram informing her of the murder. So there's all these kinds of wild and crazy yeah. stories. But if you just come down to it, I mean, it just seems pretty obvious that Lizzie did it. But yeah. her exact motive seems a little sketchy. Was she just this spoiled kid who, who know? I don't know. Yeah, it just seems so know. bizarre. I guess I'll get it as possibly, you know, greed was her biggest motivator. Yeah. Maybe she wanted more from her father. From his, like... Maybe she wanted more real estate. Maybe she wanted... I mean, obviously, she didn't want to be in that house. Right. Um, She's probably hoping to get a lot of money from his estate after he died. Yeah, that's true. And they had just sold the house back to their dad. Right, right. They made a nice profit on that house. Yeah. So money must have just been the... But how did she turn out like that? Yeah, I don't know. To have so little conscience and to just be able to whack him with a hatchet. Yeah, I guess something, you know, that they didn't know about very well, psychologically speaking. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is interesting. After the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a large modern Victorian house in the hill. That fancy neighborhood (laughs) that Lizzie had wanted to live in. She finally Finally. got to live there. She started using the name Lizbeth. Lizbeth Borden. And their new house, which Lizbeth dubbed Maplecroft, um, had... A staff that had live-in maids, a housekeeper, a coachman for their carriage. Wow. So they were living fancy. Yeah, they were. They probably had indoor toilets, too. (laughs) Yeah. They got what they wanted in the end. So because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went first to Andrew and then, at his death, passed to his daughters as part of his estate. It was a considerable settlement. Some had to be paid to Abby's family. So even though Lizzie Borden was acquitted, she was ostracized by Fall River Society. She was scorned and shunned, and she just really couldn't live in much peace while she was still in Fall River. Which is really interesting because it seemed like the town was so eager to back her up and support her, and all of a sudden, now that she's free... They uh, changed their tune a little. Yeah. Her name was again brought into the news. She was accused of shoplifting in 1897 Uh in Providence, Rhode Island. Why? She's got so much money. Yeah, there'd be no need for that. But I mean, who knows why she did what she did. Right. She had a falling out with her sister in 1905, and Emma moved out, and they never saw each other again. Wow. Lizzie was ill in her last year of life following the removal of her gallbladder. She died of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927 in Fall River, Massachusetts. Uh, Funeral details were not made public. Not very many people attended. Sadly, nine days later, Emma died from nephritis at the age of 76. She had moved into a nursing home several years later because she wanted to avoid any public scrutiny or renewed attention because books kept coming out and every time more information would come out, they'd be like Uh, in the spotlight again. So neither of them ever married and they were buried side by side by their father at the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. What's nephritis? That is kidney disease. Oh. Like a kidney infection. Ooh. 
At the time of her death, Lizzie Borden was worth over $250,000, and that is over $5 million in today's money. She had a house on the corner of French Street and Belmont Street. She owned several office buildings. She had shares in many public utilities. She had two cars and a bunch of jewelry. She left about $30,000, which in today's money is over $600,000, to the Fall River Animal Rescue League. Wow, that's kind of cool. $500, which would be $10,000 in today's money, in a trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. And her closest friend and cousin each got six grand, which would be over $126,000 today. This is a lot of money at the time. And she also left money to numerous friends and family members at the time of her death. And so that is the end of Lizzie Borden. Wow. I mean, there's so many details and facts. So much more that could have been added into this. But it's just like, this needs to be a short podcast. (laughs) So in pop culture, there have been movies. Christina Ricci, what was it, a movie... A few years ago. Yeah. About Lizzie Borden. There's another movie that you can watch on Netflix, I think, about Lizzie Borden. There's been so many books written about her. So if you want to learn more about Lizzie Borden and the 40 Wax, (laughs) that sounds like a band name. Lizzie Borden and the 40 Wax. (laughs) Um, Plus or minus 10 Wax, depending on (laughs) who you ask. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so yeah. What do you think? Do you think she did it? I think she did. I mean, it just it's just so the weird. The fact that her story kept changing and she was there, I don't know, the timing of it all just seems... Uh-huh. And nothing was taken from the house. Right. So there was no evidence of robbery. There was no evidence of sexual assault of Abby or even the father. There were no witnesses saying that they saw anybody other than family members coming or going from the house. Right. It was broad daylight. It was the middle of the... It was just... It's like she just had this urge to kill them and she didn't really think it through. Right. Very strange. Yeah. But I don't think her life was all that wonderful. No. It's probably made a living hell. Yeah. Anyway. All right. That's another episode of The Spectacular Now, Lady Killer, Lizzie Borden. (laughs) Hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next. Well, we won't see you, but. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks for all your support. We'll be back next Friday. We're not sure what the topic's going to be yet, but come back. Bye. Bye. Bye.